you're worshiping with us and new to our church family, we're glad you're here. And uh, this summer we've been in a, a series in the book of Psalms, The Search For, and uh, this morning we're continuing that. Although your bulletin says the search for healing, I've changed it. It's the search for happiness. So, And you don't have an outline, and I'll give it to you as we, we dive in here. But let me ask as we start off here, do you want to live a happy life? I mean, it means different things to different people, but if you were to ask most, they would most certainly say, yes, I want to live a happy life. Of course, why wouldn't I? But then the question must follow, how do I get this happy life? Is it even possible to have this type of life? And many have endeavored to answer this question over the years inside and outside of Christendom. The world may say, if you want to be happy, you should do what you love, to help others, to share with others, to smile more, to spend time with people you love, to to dump negative thinking, to to forgive and forget. Uh, Some even say, go take a walk in nature, just be yourself. And all this might sound good, but is it enough? Can you live happily enough with that advice? If that is enough, if so, then why are there so many unhappy people? Are people as happy as they really say they are? As Christians, we should know how to have a happy life, right? We live according to the word of God. We live in obedience to the word of God. With with obedience comes blessing from God. We follow God, we follow his word, and we'll be blessed, he says. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean we won't have pain or trials or discomfort. It means we will be utterly secure in the hands of God. To be happy in this life, we look to God and and his word for direction. So so what does God's word say about happiness in life? Well, we're going to look at Psalm 34 this morning, the search for happiness, a hearty text that has brought much joy to my heart this week as I've studied and you mentioned you don't have a bull or an outline in your bulletin, so if you're that type A personality that wants to keep track of your notes, I'll give it to you. Real simple. Two points. First, David's praise, verses 1 through 10. David's praise. Second, David's proclamation, 11 through 22. And I'm borrowing that outline from John Phillips' commentary because it's a lengthy psalm, and I appreciated how he laid that out. So that's what we'll look at, those two points this morning. Psalm 34, if you... Uh, haven't yet turned there. If you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 433. If you're new to look at the Bible, the, the large number is the psalm number. It's the chapter, Psalm 34, and the small numbers are the verses. And we're just gonna read, I'm gonna read the entire psalm, so follow with me as I read. There at the heading, it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. Verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, we we come before you humbly this morning asking that you would fill us with understanding of your word. Fill us with your spirit to discern and apply your word to our lives. 
we desperately don't want to leave the same. We, we long to be refreshed by you this morning. After a, a long week away from the fellowship of your people, it's good to be gathered together to worship. And we worship you, God, in spirit and truth. Thank you for your word that gives life, that, that brings change, that, that fuels worship. Thank you that you hear us, that you cannot but hear the prayers of your children and you long to answer. Now we ask that you would be glorified in our midst this morning as we look at your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So first this morning is David's praise. Your heading, as, as I read, should say something similar that I shared. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And this psalm is recounting what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 21, when David fled from King Saul, when he was overcome by jealousy and sought to kill David. I preached on that passage about a year ago, and so you can hop on the church app or the website if you want to listen, but it would do you some good at least this afternoon to read 1 Samuel 20 and 21 to give some context of what David's sharing here in Psalm 34. The short story is that, that David walks into Gath after running from Saul. And if you know anything about your Bible history, Gath is the hometown of Goliath. David and Goliath. You guys ever heard of that story at all? Remember Goliath? Yeah, the guy that David defeated, cut off his head, took his sword. And, and David walks into the city of Gath. Guess what's strapped to his side? Goliath's sword, not a wise move. They recognize him. It says in 1 Samuel, they, they begin to sing the song of David, which caused Saul to be so angry and jealous. So they, they know who he is. And what does he do? What, what would you do in that moment? Well, he acts like a madman, it says. 1 Samuel 21 says he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spit run down his beard. I don't know if that's a madman behavior. Right? Kids do that all the time. Your version, I mean, 1 Samuel 21 says a kish let him go. Your, this version here in Psalm 34 says Abimelech. But why is the difference there? Well, Abimelech was the, what, the designation, that term, much like the word Pharaoh was used in Egypt and Caesar was used in Rome. So Abimelech was used for King Akish. So don't get taken away from that. But here the context and what's happening is David begins to act like a madman and Akish basically says, I've got enough of those here. I'm gonna let him go. And David is safe, and he runs to the, the cave of Adelam by himself. He's alone. He's, he's thankful for escaping, and he sits down then to pen this psalm. And David begins by praising God. He, he is resolved to praise him. He says there in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He is resolved. He is fixed on praising God in every situation, under every circumstance, before and in and after trials that come, in the bright days and the dark nights, he will bless the Lord. Spurgeon says, to bless the Lord is never unseasonable. There is never a time that doesn't seem right to praise God. There is never a situation that seems we shouldn't praise him. Worship should never be a burden. It should, it should never be something that we're dragged into doing. If gathering to worship is a chore for you, if you neglect to praise God, then maybe you've either forgotten how good God is or you've never truly understood how good God is. The Christian will worship. That's who they are. And if you don't worship, then you have reason to question whether you know God. Then in verse two, he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. What are we boasting in this morning, friends? Is it your accomplishments this week? Is it your family? Is it your good deeds? Our only boast should be in God alone. And we should talk about the Lord's goodness on purpose so that other Christians may be confirmed in their trust in a faithful God and others would see that God is worthy to be trusted. What an incredible antidote to the poison of doubt and depression and despair, boasting in the Lord. How often do we feel in this? We should be known as Christians that praise God at all times. But not just alone. No, David says in verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. This is an invitation 
And David is inviting others to worship. Jeff, you said he was alone. Well, at the beginning when he entered the cave of Adullam, he was alone. But then his mighty men had heard about what David had experienced, the plight he had gone through. And so they travel, 400 men, to join him, to join this this band of warriors. And David is now, he's, he's in effect inviting them to worship together with him. And the person who has experienced the mercy of God will naturally look to others to join in the worship of God. Corporate worship is one of the natural instincts of the new life that God has given to God's people. If there's, no, if there's no desire to join with other Christians to worship, there's reason then to pause and ask, have I been regenerated? Is, is there new life at all? And who can make God great but those who feel themselves to be little? God is infinite, so you cannot increase in his greatness, but his fame, his fame will grow as you praise in the goodness of him to others. And we should come every week to gather with the saints, to worship, to magnify the Lord, and to exalt his name together. And until we get this, until we understand and and practice this faithfully, we won't understand the full context of what David's saying in this psalm. We won't understand what happiness is. And so David is resolved to praise. Next, he, he, he re- resolved to remember what, what God has done. Look there in verse four. It says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David is testifying that the Lord heard him when he cried to him. He is stating that there is a direct link between what he had prayed and how God had worked in his life. And prayer sweeps the field. It, it slays all the enemies of doubt and fear and buries their bones in the ground of God's sovereignty. And this is a psalm for for you if you're feeling alone, if you feel destitute, if you feel like you have no other way forward, if you have nothing, if you realize you can't do anything, that there's no way out. David is speaking to you this morning. David is at one of the lowest points in his life, running from his life, captured, most definitely in his mind, believing that he's going to be executed in the hands of the enemies of God. And he cries out to God to be rescued. And God listens, God hears, and God delivers him. And in verse 5, he says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. David had looked everywhere else. He had looked at his situation with Saul, and he, he runs. He looked at King Akish, and, and he acts like a madman. He, he looked at Goliath's sword and his belt. He looked everywhere, but he failed to look to the Lord. David knew that the danger there in Gath was great, and he took matters in his own hand. And he says in verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. David's rehearsing again. He's saying, he who trusts in the Lord has no need to be ashamed of his confidence. Time and eternity will both justify his reliance. And the word trouble means to be restricted, to be tied up, to be limited or inhibited. This is David. This is his situation. This is his plight before King Kish. David is the, the poor man here. He is the one without the resources to bring about his rescue. And when he calls out to the Lord, he hears him. The Lord hears him and saves him. Prayer can push away the pressure of our troubles like sweeping away dust from the floor. And friends, God will not allow his children to be destroyed. In fact, David says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. When I read read verse 7 this week, my mind went directly to 2 Kings 6. You know the story, the king of Syria is warring against Israel, but every time he's about to attack, the, the king of Israel finds out and leaves before the attack. And the king of Syria is is irritated. And he asked the question, who's the traitor here? Who, who is going to the king of Israel and giving our plans? And they reply, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. There is nowhere safe, friends. There's nowhere safe to have private conversations when God's around. And so the angry king then, and he's angry, orders his army to go down to Dothan and capture this menacing prophet okay it's a hilarious picture if you 
you see what's happening here, uh, this is a huge army headed out. And if someone were to see them and stop them and ask where you're headed, they, they would reply, well, you see, there's this one prophet who's foiling the plans of our king. Every time we're about to crush Israel, he tells the king of Israel our attack and they escape and we're gonna go get him. We're gonna take out this one guy. And so Elisha has a servant here in this story, a young man who's probably in the school of prophets and he hears the rumbling, the noise of the army and he, he steps outside and he looks at the mountainside and it's filled with the Syrian army. And he calls Elisha frantic and says, well, what are we gonna do? I mean, to me, he has the response that I would have. Here they are, he and Elisha, and this huge army is ready to just overtake them. And Elisha calmly responds in verse 16. He says to him, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Huh. Can you imagine the bewilderment at that point from this servant? Really? It's you and me, buddy. You know, I just described this massive army up on the hillside, and you say, don't be afraid. You see, he's thinking this is the problem with these old prophets, you know. They just don't get it. Maybe he needs his eyes checked. He, he just can't see what I'm seeing. He's, he's not being realistic. But in fact, Elisha, in his weird supernatural calmness, knows his God. In the verse 17, he says, Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. See, David's serving us this morning. He's reminding us that we have limited vision and limited faith. And listen, church, we have eyesight issues. I find it interesting that Elisha doesn't pray for the army to show up. He doesn't ask for the army to show up. He's not praying, God, please send an army now to defend us. No, he calmly prays for God to open the eyes of this fearful young man so that he can see what's already there. And he opens his eyes and he sees the mountain filled with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I think of Jesus too when he's on the mount and he's transfigured before his disciples in Mark chapter nine and it's not a momentary display of magic or, or pyrotechnics. It's not that like Jesus changed his clothes on top of the mountain. No, it's an unveiling. It's a revealing as the universe actually is. And the disciples in that moment as they stand before God and he's white, so much so it's blinding. They get a momentary glimpse of just a small fraction of what's truly happening right now. The disciples see what's already there. And Elisha and his servant experience with their eyes the same thing. They see what's already there. God is already present. And his armies of angels are already present. And he will not allow his servants to be destroyed. And David says to us, he encamps around those that fear him. And that's what he's saying to us. David's reminding us this morning that our God is great. He is transcendent. He is present and he is available to us. And how many times, we don't know, we'll find out someday that God has rescued us and we had no idea. Friends, God is doing 10,000 things right now and you may be aware of three that just blows my mind when I think about that. God cares for his children. And he will not allow us to be destroyed. And this awareness causes David then, and this is the best part, to praise in verse 8. Does it, does it not cause your heart to praise? Look at what he says here in verse 8. Look down at your Bible. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David, as he rehearses all that God has done for them, cannot help but praise God and then call others to, to him to enjoy him. Have you tasted and seen 
the goodness of God? He asked, David asked all who would listen that you would find your soul satisfaction in the Lord. It's not enough to, to see and hear of the goodness of God from afar. You have to come and you have to taste for yourself. You need to try out the goodness of God. You will not know except for tasting it yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is in fact very good. And faith is the soul's taste of the goodness of God. Have you ever been to a restaurant? And, or better yet, you've visited a foreign country. And, and you've tasted the food that was so different than what you're used to. And I'm not talking about food at a gas station on the way to the church camp out. <laughs> talking about good food. Well, I don't know. I've never tasted it, so I can't say that. Let me back up. But you've tasted this food. You've, you've experienced this culture, and it just wows you. I love that aspect of traveling. You, you, you taste different things and, and seeing the sights even. You, and you come back and you want to tell people, like, I tasted this. It was really good. Or you find a restaurant and say, you got to go here. This is so good. You got to taste this. You got to try this. And we talk about that experience. If you sit down with Katie and I, we'll spend hours sharing all the great experiences of our years of travel, all the foods, all the countries, all the sites, all the things we've done. And you do it too. I know you do. We, we love to talk about the things that we've tasted, the things that we've seen. It comes naturally to us to share what we've enjoyed. We, we, what we feel is one of the most enjoyable things on earth. You need to try this. Have you tried steak there? Have you tried this there? You're, you're wanting to tell people about it. And my question is, are you excited like that about the Lord? When was the last time you challenged someone to taste and see? The Lord is good. Friends, perhaps you're here this morning and the discussion of the goodness and enjoyment of God is foreign to you. You need to understand that some things, especially in the depths of religious life with God, can only be understood by being experienced. And it's, it's also incapable of being adequately described in words. The enjoyment must come before the illumination, then the enjoyment becomes the illumination. And there are things that must be loved before we can know them to be worthy of our love. Things to be believed before we can understand them to be worthy of belief. And so hear me when, when we say, or another Christian says to you, friend, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And you only understand this after you do it. You can't understand how, how great honey tastes unless you taste it. You have to eat it. And the only way you understand the goodness of God is to taste of him through faith. It's the only way. I can sit up here for the next three hours and describe to you, but it won't nearly explain to you the depths of the goodness of God unless you taste of it on your own. You have to try for yourself and find out. And you will understand what we're talking about. And your soul, for the very first time, will be satisfied. And there's so much more to life than you've been told, friends. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then David instructs us in verse 9. He says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Pay to him humble, childlike reverence. Don't be overly concerned with humans. Be fearful, be reverent of God. Think of him first, of what he thinks. Think of what he sees of your life, not what others think. Think of what he hears from your mouth, not what others hear. Fear God, not man. And those that fear the Lord won't lack anything they need. God will not allow his children to starve. The promise of prayer does not mean that God will change every difficult thing in your life, but he will preserve you for as long as he has work for you to do on earth. And he will transform even the difficult circumstances by his presence and perhaps by the presence of others whom he sends to be with you. And those that fear the Lord will find that God fulfills his word to them. And to illustrate it, David writes in verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lions, the, the kingly animals at the head of the food chain, not the Detroit lions, 
They're not the kingly head. Not yet. Lions, the king of the jungle, head of the food chain, would, would suffer want and hunger before those that would seek the Lord. They will howl with misery when they don't have enough. But when you, Christian, trust in the Lord, you will have all that you need. Not all that you want, all that you need. No really good thing shall be denied to those who first and most make their end of life to seek and serve the Lord. So friends, are we resolved in praising God like David, no matter what the situation may be? Do we, we have the same resolve that David has here to praise God? Where does your heart race this morning in, in bragging and boasting? Does it, does it naturally boast in yourself, in your circumstances, or in God? Do you regularly rehearse the goodness of God? Is that regularly on your lips in your home? How good God is. Are you quicker to think of all that you are missing in life rather than consider all that God has done and is doing right now? Is corporate worship important to you? Do you make it a priority to gather with other Christians to worship? Do you understand that this isn't extra for the Christian life? Friends, this is the Christian life. I had someone new a while back that had began attending here at EBC, and they asked me a very important question. They said, what do you expect of us if we start coming to this church? And I thought it was a great question. And my answer, that you would gather to worship with Christians here. I'm not as much concerned about Sunday school, although I believe it's helpful. I'm not as much concerned about Bible studies or events, although I think they can be helpful. I'm most concerned that you gather with the saints to worship with them in this room together on Sunday mornings. That's what, that's what we see in Scripture. All the other is, is extra, okay? I'll, I'll leave it to you as an adult to decide what you are joined in and involved in. But worship, that's what's laid out in Scripture. That's the requirement. That's what we see in Scripture, to be an obedient to him. And so we should look to, to gather corporately as the body of Christ to worship. How much of your life is filled right now with the fear of man rather than the fear of God? What, what dominates your thoughts more? More of what God thinks or what people think? What, what controls your daily decisions? What a coworker may think or what God thinks? How often do you make decisions for life that are born out of fear of what others may think of you? Friends, the world is passing away and even before the world passes away, it won't be faithful to you. Friends, God is always faithful to you. He will never pass away. He, he, his promises will never fail. Fear him. Fear him more than this world. Fear him more than your friends or your coworkers. And we should look to live our lives out of fear of, and reverence of him. So this is David's praise. Second is David's proclamation. He now switches to gather the men that have joined him in the cave to now really preaching a sermon to them of what he's learned with his time with Akish and how they should live from here on out. And he says in verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. See, these men, they love David. They're, they're willing to, to serve alongside him, to, to, to die for him. And so they want to listen. And he says, if you want to have a happy life, you learn to fear the Lord. What, what person doesn't want to live to a ripe old age, living healthy and happy with rich rewards? And this was a subject that would grasp the ears of the men. And he says, teach the fear of the Lord. Who, who will teach the fear of the Lord if we don't as Christians? And I realize that David's speaking to the men here. There's also application for us to teach others, especially children. Children are the most hopeful people to teach. And we should make it our priority to disciple them in ways of the word. This shouldn't be a burden for us. It should be a joy. Our kids are right now being discipled by either the world or by us. Which is it? 
Parents, are you taking your responsibility seriously to raise your kids in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord? It's your responsibility alone. We teach our kids to fear things all the time, to revere things. In fact, that's what we did for the last two weeks. We traveled. We got to find an airplane with four kids. It was glorious. Actually, it was good. But we flew, and, and, and we taught our kids a number of things to fear as you head to the airport. I was thinking through, what are some things? Well, when you get out of the car at the airport, you need to stay with mom and dad so you don't wander in front of cars and get hit. Be fearful. Revere cars that drive fast. When we get in line for security and the, and the TSA agent asks, are you so-and-so? You answer. Do you know your parent? Please answer. Fear. When we're walking through the airport with lots of people, they hold our hands so they don't get lost. Why? Because someone could take them. They could get lost. They, wouldn't, they fear when they sit down at the seat in the airplane. You buckle up. You listen to flight attendants. Even though you want to put your tray table down, you listen. You show fear and reverence in the process of traveling. We do it all the time as parents. But what about the Lord? This world will not teach our kids to fear the Lord. Who will teach our kids to fear the Lord, to revere him, to worship him, to serve him if we don't do it? The world most definitely wants to sway our kids away from God and from his word. It's our responsibility, friends. We will endeavor to help you as a church. Most definitely as a church, we want to walk alongside with you parents to help you. We'll work together. We need you as a church to help one another. One way that we seek to help parents in this endeavor to teach your kids the fear of the Lord is through some of our ministries. VBS is a great opportunity to join us in teaching the fear of the Lord. We need more people to sacrifice this summer. Can I tell you something? As a church, we've never lacked the funds for VBS, but we have many summers lacked people. And, and I'll just say this. I don't know if I should. Just, someone drove by the church in the fall and gave $10,000 to us to run our VBS for the next number of years. We don't need money. God provided that already. We need people. We need people to step up and say, I'm going to take vacation. I know, I know, maybe just a couple days to come serve kids, to teach them to fear the Lord. We're going to walk through the attributes of God this week or this summer. I'm looking forward to that. Teach them to revere God, to love him. Preach the gospel every week. God, man, Christ's response. That you would know that and you would teach that to the kids. This is an opportunity for us as a church to serve not only our kids, but kids in the neighborhood. It's an excellent way for you to grow in your discipleship of others. Then David says in verse 12, I'm going to keep going here. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Literally, there is no one who does not want to enjoy life. David is saying that the fear of the Lord is doing right. That is, it involves obedience. Moreover, since the fear of the Lord is the enjoyment of the Lord, then the way to enjoy the Lord is to taste and see that he is good. It's to obey him. It's to obey his word. The good you want to enjoy goes hand in hand with the obedience to his word. That's why David says then in verse 13, to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. See, he's, he's preaching now to these men. He's preaching to himself. A crafty schemer lives like a spy in the enemy's camp in constant fear of exposure and execution. And a schemer, a liar, has to keep lying, to keep covering his tracks. And when he's caught, he has to develop more lies to cover the lies that he's over lied about. And he's in constant fear of being found out. Clean and honest conversation by keeping the conscience at ease promotes happiness and allows you to sleep with ease. But lying and wicked talk stuffs the pillows with thorns and makes like a constant whirl of fear and shame. So David says, Keep your tongue, protect your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He's saying, take heed of your words. But he also says to take heed of your walk. Look at verse 14. 
Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He's literally saying, go away from evil. Set a distance between yourself and temptation and do good. Set your heart to obey God and obey his word. There are some places that a Christian should never go. There are some websites that a believer should never click on. And there are certain doors that you should never don. My friends, I beg you this morning, Christians, depart from evil and do good. And living in the fear of the Lord will strengthen you to depart from evil. And then David says at the end of verse 14, seek peace, not turmoil. Anger is murder to oneself as well as to its object. And we're to strive for peace. Romans 12, 18 and 19, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Christians this morning, if it's all possible, live at peace with others, pursue it, make it your goal this week. Next, David encourages them to take heed of their works, their words and their walk. Now their works in verse 15. He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And in verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. I don't know if this is new information for you at all this morning, but God sees what you do and he, see, and he hears all that you say. He knows all that you think. And that is a terrific truth to everyone who is doing and saying things that are pleasing the Lord. But it's an awful truth for those who are displeasing God. For those that are here this morning, that you're still living your sins, this verse should frighten you. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Friends, God is not indifferent towards your sin. All of your sin, all of your disobedience is first and foremost against God. And his word reminds us that God opposes the proud. He opposes those that defy his word and his truth. And the face of the Lord is direct towards you, sinner. And it would be ungracious for me not to warn you this morning. Your future is not bleak. It's disastrous. You won't find any way out later. You won't navigate this mess on your own. You won't find some other loophole. It's only through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. His truth is the only truth that needs to be believed and accepted. And if you're here this morning and you have no clear understanding of what it means to be a friend of God, to be his child, I've been praying for you. I've been praying that you would hear and heed this warning. Our God is against those who do evil because he is perfectly holy. He opposes the faults and he knows the truth and he knows the truth about us. We cannot hide. We are not him. We are not God. And we shouldn't act as if we are. The Bible is clear. We all sin. That means we all act as if we're gods ourselves. We do things for our own glory and comfort because that is what we want, to live by our own standard. And that's sin. And because God is good and God is holy, he will judge us, every single one of us, for our sins. And he will oppose us forever. And our only hope is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God took on flesh Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a perfect life of truth and obedience to the Father. He was not proud. He was the model of perfect humility and so humble and loving that he would go to the cross and give his life away to everyone who would turn from their way of life and trust in him. And he became a sacrifice and died in the place of us to pay for our sins on the cross to remove the hostility that we have with God. If only we would trust in him alone. And God raised Jesus from the dead, showing that he accepted the sacrifice on the cross and he was raised for our justification. That means you can be forgiven for all of your opposition against God, for all of your evil ways and anger and selfish ambition and fighting. You can be forgiven. 
Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And because we love you, we warn you this morning, and we invite you, as the psalmist has said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is greater than you can imagine. And he will take you the way you are and transform you. Every one of us here who is Christian was once vile and unpleasant. Our very best works were nothing but filthy, wretched, smelly rags before a holy God. But then he regenerated us. He cleansed us. He saved us. And now he uses us as instruments for his own glory. In such a way, in such a way he does this, that the angels long to trade places with us. God is in the business of taking filthy, hopeless sinners, clearing them up, making them new, and filling them with life. And the psalmist says, oh, taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Turn from your sins today and trust in Christ. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The scriptures say today is the day of salvation. In fact, I read today in Isaiah, if you're reading along in the Bible plan, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Today is the day of salvation. We would love to talk with you today showing you from the scriptures how you can have this relationship with God. And I implore you to come see us after the service, to see myself or another elder, Pastor Ryan. We'd love to walk through what the gospel is in more detail. You would turn from your life of sin, turn to follow him. And Christian, this morning, Psalm 34 says, the righteous are so dear to God that he cannot take his eyes off you. He watches you carefully. Christian, he, he watches you intently as if, as if you are the only one creature in the entire universe. He hears your cry like a father attuned to the cry of a new baby. He knows the sound of your cry. And he hears it and he responds. He says in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Our afflictions may be numerous and complicated, but prayer can set us free from them all. And the Lord will show himself strong on our behalf. And Christian, when you cry out to the Lord, he hears. Maybe you need to underline that verse this morning. And remind yourself. It gets better in verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Brokenhearted people tend to think that God is far away when he is really most near them. And your eyes and your ears are stopped up with the brokenness and you cannot see that God is right there. And faith will reveal to you that God is right there. David is saying to you, I was down there. I was, I was crushed. I was, I was in captivity. I was down and depressed. I thought I was done for when I stood before this king, Akish. But the Lord saved me. And God is near to the humble, the brokenhearted, those who don't think so highly of themselves, those who know that they need God. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And salvation is linked to contrition. And the only way to be saved is to realize that you can never save yourself. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they realize they need help from outside. And being spiritually poor is realizing that you're spiritually bankrupt. You need God and you know it. And to be poor in spirit is to realize I have nothing, I am nothing, and I can do nothing to save myself. That's the only way to salvation, Then as David ends here, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
Scripture does not flatter us like the storybooks with the idea that, that goodness will secure us from all trouble. On the contrary, we are again and again reminded and warned to expect tribulation, to expect suffering. I really feel like we need to change the sign at the, at the drive and say, come suffer with us. Because the lie from other preachers are that you will live a pain-free life, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. We will expect tribulation. We should expect it. And there's an end to the believer's affliction, a joyful end. That God has more mercy and power than all the troubles and afflictions that we will have in this world. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. David kept safe, a kish let him go, but this also, this also points, did you see it? It points to Jesus on the cross. but not so for the wicked. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. David has made the decision after all the events in Gath with King Achish that he would leave his life in the hands of God with the issues that he is experiencing with King Saul. The story's not done. If you read in 1 Samuel 21, there's still things to be worked out with King Saul and David's saying, I refuse to kill Saul. God will have to avenge him. And then the promise in verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And what a promise that is, Christian. We will never be deserted. Christian, you will never be forsaken. Christian, you will never be given up to ruin. Eternity will heal all the wounds that we experience on earth. So friends, who are you teaching to fear the Lord? Part of the Christian life is passing on what we know to others. It's called discipleship. And discipleship is helping others follow God. This is what Christians do. Not just pastors, not just elders, Christians. All Christians who are you helping to follow God? Christian, how are you doing at keeping your tongue? Are you taking heed of your words or they, do they flow too easily out of your mouth? Do you realize that every word you speak, you will give an account for? Do you realize that every word you speak, God hears? Do you remember that God sees all? Does this bring you comfort or anxiety? How are you doing at pursuing peace, Christian? Are we known as people who desire peace, who seek to bring peace? These are just some of the things that this psalm draws out for us to consider. P.C. Craig writes, the fear of the Lord is indeed the fountain foundation of life, the key to joy in life and long and happy days, but it's not a guarantee that life will always be easy. It may mend the broken heart, but does not prevent the heart from being broken. It may restore spiritually crushed, but does not crush the forces that may create opposition. Deliverance is one thing, exemption from trouble is another. And we shouldn't, as Christians, consistently desire exemption from trouble. Don't seek the easy life, friends. Seek God. And think with me. Is God committed to your happiness? Yeah, actually he is. But if you come to God to make yourself happy, you come to a false God. A God of your own making. And there have been many that have come to Christianity to make their dreams come true. To make them happy. But they're not coming to God, they're coming to a butler. They're coming to someone that can serve them. But that's not the God of the Bible. That God doesn't exist. The God of the scripture is there and you come to him because you're, he created you and he owns you. And when you see, when you come to Christ, you come to him because you know you were made for him and you want to worship him and serve him, not the other way around. You come to God and say, I don't care about happiness. I owe you everything, God. 
I mean, there are many that come to God and say, I want you, God, but I also want so much more. And you either say to God, I owe you everything and you owe me nothing, or you say, I come to you now and you owe me a whole lot. And how do you know which one you've chosen? How do you respond when trouble comes? What do you say? You say, what's the point of coming to church anymore? What good is it to read the Bible? If you say that, you came to God in hopes of happiness. And your number one priority was happiness. And we need to grow in and realize that you come to God to love him and serve him. And if you get happiness, praise the Lord. And here's the paradox. The less you're concerned about your happiness and the more you're concerned about God, the happier you will be. It's not a scheme to get something from God, saying this, doing that, and then getting the payout. No, this is the result of following God. Pursue God and get blessings on earth. Pursue blessings and get neither. Happiness is an afterthought. Happy people don't seek happiness. They seek God. And friends, a happy life is possible. Why don't more people have it? Because they are so focused on this world and the circumstances and because they only pursue happiness and never find it. Seek God and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together to worship you this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be peaceful people. Help us to be holy. Help us to fear you, to live in obedience to your word, and to teach others also. You are so good to us, God. You have given us life, and you have brought us out of this darkness into your marvelous light, and you've restored us, and you have healed us, and you have blessed us. And we know one day that the skies will roll back and you will come for your bride. Help us to live in light of that truth, knowing that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, that you are King. Help us, God, to not hoard the gospel to ourselves, but boldly share the goodness of our God, that others may come and taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.